From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, Episode 12, for the 2nd of October, 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifred. Hi, this is indeed Tom Winifred coming to you from Wales by just 30 yards. One of the joys of living on a farm is that there is plenty for my two cats to go out and kill. If you listen carefully to the second interview today, uh, you'll hear one of my cats in action. It brought in a rat. It was very proud of itself. Show how much it loved me. It brought it in to within a couple of yards of where I was recording, meowed loudly, and then proceeded to eat the rat on the carpet. Turn up the volume and you can hear that crunch, crunch, crunch. Talking of rats, uh, the big event uh, of the past couple of days on Share Profits has been concerning an aimlessly company called Bahamas Petroleum. I invite you to go and look at the share price. Uh, The share price spiked from about 1p to well over 2p over the past month, thanks to the company promoting its stock incredibly aggressively. This being AIM, I'm sure you can guess what was going to happen next. On Monday, I revealed that the company was seeking to raise $25 million in a placing This is attempted to go away at 1.4p when the shares were in excess of 2p, bearing in mind that before the ramp, the stock was trading at just 1p. Uh, That didn't go so well. And by Monday, when I broke the story, uh, the company was trying to raise money at just 1.2p. The company put out a rather muted non-denial denial. It was disingenuous. The shares uh, spiked up to 1.85p before I published another article containing an email which had fallen into my possession showing quite explicitly that the company was, whatever it said via RNS, endeavouring to get that placing away. Uh, last night, uh, that being Tuesday night, I revealed that the placing was going to be done at 1p. The company is still failing to admit to it, uh, but the placing is going to be done at 1p. Now, I've got a lot of criticism for this. There are folks out there in uh, the bulletin board moron community who say this is outrageous. The shares are now 1.35p to sell. That bastard Tom Winifrith and his criminal gang at share profits have cost us a lot of money. Well, that's not actually true. I mean, technically, yes, the shares were one point, I think 1.95 to buy before I ran the first story. Uh, but uh, have I really cost you money? In the short term, yes, the share price has gone down, uh, revealing that there was this big placing underway has no doubt depressed the share price. So I suppose you could say I've cost you money. The first thing is just what is the nature of journalism? I was always brought up to believe, and I've been in this rotten old game for, gosh, almost 30 years now. Uh, I was always taught to believe that what the job of a journalist to do was to print the stories that people didn't want appearing. Uh, 
Too often, if you read the Sunday papers, if you read the Deadwood Press, uh, the stories that appear almost invariably are stories that companies do want appearing. Uh, The journalists are just reprinting press releases on behalf of their buddies in the PR world uh, in order to suck up to them so they can get jobs in PR when they uh, decide that they want to earn a real wage. That is what the Deadwood Press does, and it is wrong. Uh, the Deadwood Press has been involved in the promote of Bahamas Petroleum, which has seen the shares go from 1 to over 2p, in order to get a placing away. Uh, my job uh, is, as a journalist, to print what people don't want appearing. Uh, so that, firstly, I'm just doing my job. Secondly, I'm not, as some folks think, breaching the insider dealing laws. The insider dealing laws are pretty explicit. You have to be made an insider. Uh, And if someone had made me an insider, then I would not be able to deal in the shares, nor would I be able to encourage others to deal either on the long or short tack uh, by publishing information. But I was not made an insider. Uh, and therefore, I am perfectly clear to, uh, and able to publish whatever I want. Uh, and indeed, I think it is my duty as a journalist to publish the truth. Uh, the final point is, of course, that it is not me that is depressing the share price. The share price has been puffed up by the company and its legion of advisers. It's now returning, uh, as gravity inevitably sees it, uh, it doing, Uh, towards the price at which it is uh, raising money. If you really, really believe in this company, you could have called any number of the retail brokers, the bucket shops, the Cornhills, the Novums of this world, uh, and just told them uh, that you wanted stock in this placing at 1p. If you really believed in it, uh, you could buy more shares. Uh, The danger, of course, is had I not published the story that I did on the Monday of this week, there would have been retail investors who would be sucking up the Kool-Aid, who would have believed the PR puffery of the company, and who would have been buying more shares at 1.9p, at 1.95p, oblivious, uh, unaware of the fact that there was a hugely discounted placing underway. Because that is the way that companies on aim behave. They treat retail investors as cannon fodder. They are the people whose uh, wealth is there to be uh, decimated by buying into the puff, by buying into the ramp. Uh, The companies don't care about these people. They want them to overpay for the stock so that they can then get a placing away to the city insiders uh, at at, at a highest price as possible. So in publishing that story, I was protecting people from buying more shares in the secondary market. Uh, And obviously, uh, by uh, pointing out that bucket shops like Cornhill and Dovan were involved, and it's very easy to open an account with either of those fine firms, pointing them out that if they wanted to buy more stock, the way to do it was to open an account there and buy into the placing. It was doing everybody a service. It's not uh, that shareholders in Bahamas Petroleum are rushing up to congratulate me for it, but that is what journalists should be doing, and it's what this site does on a regular basis. If we hear that a placing is underway... If any one of the journalists on Share Profits hears that a placing is underway, as long as they've not been made an insider, uh, and we deliberately tell people we do not want to be made insiders, 
if we hear something is there, we will publish uh, in order to protect our readers from overpaying in the secondary market. Uh, that is our job. There are folks who say they don't need to use services like Share Profits. They don't need to use our website. They're quite happy to get their information for free from bulletin boards. Well, on Monday morning, the bulletin boards were telling everybody, uh, all the commentary on the bulletin boards were telling folks to fill their boots with Bahamas Petroleum. Those people who invest just £5.99 a month to have access to share profits were not making that mistake. It strikes me getting your misinformation for free is not really a particularly effective way of making money from AIM shares. It's worth making a small investment to get the truth from share profits. Uh, so please, uh, if you're one of the many people who listen to this podcast but are not a member of Share Profits because you only get things for free, now is the time to invest a mere five ninety nine a month and to stay ahead of the game. Of course, this Share Profit, uh, this this uh, Share Profits Radio is free, uh, and it is free not because we charge companies to appear. The only companies that appear here are ones where I'm interested in the company or I'm interested in the CEO and I think they have something to say, and we do not charge them for being here. We're able to bring you this podcast for free uh, because of the sponsorship, uh, in this case, from Yorkville Advisors, uh, which is, as you may know, uh, one of the leading providers, both in the United States uh, and here and indeed in Australia, of funding for smaller companies. Uh, it's often attacked for providing death spiral finance. That's not really what it does. It provides a range of equity options, straight equity, loans, convertible loans, uh, there are a number of people who operate in this space who, as I say, more or less every week, uh, should be in prison for usury. So bad are the deals they offer to companies. I don't believe that Yorkville uh, is in that category. It is very much best of breed. If you are the CEO or CFO of a company you're looking to raise finance, I suggest you give them a call. Contact them at yorkvilleadvisors.com and make sure you mention where you heard about them. And that is to say on this fine podcast. And now for my first guest. This interview is quite long. Uh, if you're not invested in the company, you might find it hard going. If you are, I'm sure you'll find it very interesting. I should declare I do own shares in the company whose CEO I'm about to interview. My first guest today is Kirsty Fuller, who is the chief executive of Big Sofa, a company I should declare, much to my pain, I am a shareholder in. Uh, Kirsty, uh, you're actually the first female guest we've had on Share Profits Radio. Uh, do you think that there are too few female chief executives, or do you think that what we should be worrying about is the quality of chief executives? Well, I'll always say, Tom, that I think we should worry about the quality of chief executives. I think um, you want the best person um, to do the job. Um, having said that, I think it's harder still for women to um, get to that position. Um, and I think there can be um, barriers to successes and achievements being recognized and therefore opportunities opening up um, for women as, as, as leaders of companies. Um, 
I mean, that said, I'm not I'm not here to to sort of be, uh, I don't know, advancing a huge feminist agenda at all. Um, but it has been striking, actually, in the technology space, because, uh, as you probably know, my previous work was more in market was in a very marketing services, Omnicom. I was with Omnicom. I sold a business to Omnicom and I was in the insight and marketing services space. And actually, in that space in the UK, there's a really high percentage of women in, in leadership positions and actually it's been quite quite noticeable for me coming into more of the technology space and perhaps particularly in a um in as a company on aim um how few women i am encountering in in senior uh positions so um i'm sure that will change i'm really sure that will change um but part of it just sort of demographics that when when i went to university I think 60% or 65% of my college were male. Uh, and now that we're all sort of in our 50s, we're, we're reaching, well, my peers are reaching positions of being CEOs. Obviously, I'm not. But, um, uh, 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 and they're going to be two-thirds male. I see today that my college this year is 57% female in terms of the graduate intake. And it's just a change in society. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't disagree with that, Tom. I think there is a there is a change, and you can't address, um, you can't expect, as it were, the manifestation manifestations of what was a sort of struct a structure, so social structures that existed um, at the time of people, you know, choosing whether they went to university, choosing the subjects they were studying, and all that kind of thing. You can't just change that. I don't think 25 years later, you have to, you know, look at the change coming through from um, foundations, actually, and, and decision making at a sort of quite foundational level. So I don't I mean, I don't I don't disagree with that. I think there's also sort of structural challenges uh, when those people were at early stages of their career. And, you know, I'm in my uh, mid 50s and um I was definitely the exception to have worked full time when I had young children. Um, whereas I think, again, that's becoming more normalized. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's more normalized. Um, and there's a little bit, there's more of a sense of, well, actually, if you're going to, you're going to have two people working in a relationship, then you need to have uh, structures and support to make that possible for, you know, for both partners. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably, broadly speaking, Tom, in agreement with, um, with what you're saying. Have you encountered sex, sexism in, in sort of what, hindering your career? Do you know what? what one, of the, one of the things I, I would say in my career, no. Um, I feel very fortunate uh, in that. I think in, in sort of insight research and marketing, in, particularly in the UK, actually, um, there, were, there was just a very, very high representation of women. And I feel like um, yeah, I feel like a very meritocratic um, set of principles were, were in play. I, I, I mean, the, the one area that was challenging, I think, was moving into finance functions within businesses where um, at senior levels, um, there's, there's a very, very strong uh, male bias very often. 
Um, and I used to sometimes feel that just in the nature of the discussion and the perspectives that, that it would have been nice to have some sort of different, different points of view in there. But on the whole, I am very happy to say that I have not, I do not feel that my career was held back, hindered, that I was sort of fighting extra hard um, for my achievements. And But I, I don't know that that's a usual story, but it is, it is honestly my story. Okay. Let's turn to Big Sofa. Um, uh, I'm continually teased by people saying that I don't know what your company does. Uh, what actually does your company do? <laughs> That's such a good, uh, such a good question. I always think a good test for can you explain what your company does is when you're uh, a member of your family or your mother, particularly it's my mother, who says, "Now, what, what do you actually do? You know, what what does this business uh, actually do?" And and I, and I explain it. It quite simply, which is we've got a huge growth in video as a as a medium. Um, people are comfortable with it. They use it to communicate. They, you know, they publish their lives through it. Um, we can observe and stream uh, video more readily, more easily than than ever before. But actually, it's a it's a really really rich source of not just illustration, which is, I think, the, the kind of box it, it sat in, particularly in the insight industry, but actually as a source of data. So what did Big Sofa do? Big Sofa recognised that we're going to need to build technology solutions, a platform that can ingest video from any source, actually, any file size, um, from short little, you know, if you like, sound bites right through to, you know, almost 24-7 uh, streams, uh, ingest it, then then organize it and make it possible to extract data from it, uh, use it as data, video as data. Uh, and that is essentially what this business does. That's what the technology is built to do. Its applications um, are actually quite horizontal. So this business is built to focus on the market research industry, and that's where the focus of the business has been to date. But probably the applications go beyond the confines, if you like, of that discipline within large multinationals to, you know, large um, data companies, actually, who are looking at lots of data streams, you know, whether that's Internet of Things, fridges, you know, you name it. But actually, there's a human data stream as well. There's a behavioral data stream. What are people doing in spaces and how are they interacting with all the different technologies or gadgets or uh, people? Uh, what does that behavior look like? Um, you need, a, if you like, a human data stream as well. I think your mother's a lot cleverer than I am because I'm still <laughs> none the wiser on this one. Can you give me a, a worked case study? You have a deal with you have a deal. Do you have a deal with Procter and Gamble? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Although I, w I won't talk about that one specifically, but let, let me give you a work uh, a work case study um, that's that's uh, unbranded. So let's take um, coffee machines. So coffee's on the rise, isn't it? it has been. Um, we've all got you know much more uh, uh, more like connoisseurs of coffee, um, and there's a lot of coffee machines going into homes. So if you're in the, in, in the kind of uh, 
manufacturer of those kinds of appliances, you're really trying to understand how do we design the optimum machine, but also once we've designed machines, what are the glitches, whether that's technical glitches, as in there's something on our machine that doesn't actually work that well, um, and we get you know error, or it's human error, which is it gets used incorrectly because actually people it's not intuitive enough to use or the instructions aren't good enough or whatever now in the past that kind of study would probably be done by almost taking people out out of a real situation into a kind of test experiment lab um, and probably you would get people to use the machine and then you would ask them questions about their experience so you know what did you find easy what were your, what was hard where did you have a problem what was the outcome like so it's so it's all about a kind of recalled version of the experience but off you know we all know that we rationalize responses when we get asked questions about things we've done when we don't so this would be a sort of traditionally it would have been a sort of focus group we we, we gather together 20 people and right. ask them to use the machine and tell us what went wrong. It might be a focus group, or actually, Tom, it could be a much larger scale survey. So you get, you know, 150, 200, 250 people through where use it, you know, and then do a questionnaire on it. So uh -huh. it's not it's not necessarily focus it's not necessarily a, a group discussion it could be but but you can actually get up to quite large numbers but how much better if you have it sitting in the real environment that it that it will live in and you just observe what people do with it and therefore you're not asking them to assess error I mean you can also ask them subsequently but you're looking at how are they doing it you can get you can then extract and you can do that at scale by uh, streaming that observational data into, for example, our platform, organize it, and you can extract data from it, how long, lengths of time, frequencies, uh, the triggers to use, um, how difficult it was to clean and you know empty and, and, and all of that kind of thing. And it's the kind of data that uh, research and development teams really, really crave. Um, and you can put it on a system where they can say, I'm really interested in this error of, I don't know how often they, um, there's, a, there's a problem when they put the capsule in, say. And they say, I want to just go in and I want to look at 150 examples, I'm just saying 150 random number, of people uh, loading it up, putting the capsule in. And they can go onto the, the, our platform, for example, and they can just search that and say, right, I'm just going to watch 150 of those. I'll also have extracted data on that, how long, how many failures, you know, which we, we could be monitoring which flavors, I mean, all sorts of things. Um, but that's a data system you are creating, but with really authentic data as opposed to claimed data or even sort of data that comes from a very artificial laboratory kind of environment. Um, so that's one that's that's one example. Another example might be something like, you know, a technology in the kitchen, you know, whether that's in the I, I don't know, this sort of Alexa type space or or whatever, where you're actually wanting to understand when it's sitting in a home, what's really happening and what's happening roundabout in the in the space that um, they don't pick up, they might not pick up from their data. We haven't worked for them, by the way, but I'm just giving that as an example. But, but you might pick up lots of examples of where they might have used it, but didn't use it, they used something else. 
And you can only get that from being observing the whole kind of contextual environment and then the human behavior within that context. So that kind of data, if you like, is really valuable. And if you can ingest it, but also systemize it, so make it searchable, make it structured, be able to extract hard data points from it, that's really valuable for, um, might be even for communication campaigns, for uh, innovation ideas, for, you know, R&D programs. So, um, you know, those are some of the examples. Does that feel a bit more tangible as to teams saying, right, I'm going to, I'm going to address the, you know, this on the coffee machine, or actually I'm looking at a, a, a technology in the home and I'm actually understanding way better how it's being, how it's sitting versus lots of other options, use options. And I'm, I'm confused about two points here. Yeah. One is you capture uh, all these people using the coffee machine and, yes. and putting the capsule in upside down. Yeah. When it goes into your platform, yeah. uh, is there a manual element of loading it into a platform or is it all automated? It's auto so so our our I mean we're on a journey towards more and greater and greater automation. So in the first instance it's automated. So we've got um, we've got a system where we stream the data streamed directly onto our platform, but but in the first instance, there are, I mean, very crudely, there's motion detection, but that's a fairly, you know, first stage of automation. But the problem with motion detection is you can pick up things like cats and dogs and shadows and who knows what. Um, so you need to bring in a people detection algorithm so that you're only catching people uh when you're you know when you're when you've got the stream um and then you can get through to um a machine learning program which is what we're partnered with very large uh business to do where they've got a specific um area in the kitchen actually that they're very very interested in so you start a machine learning process to and you need large enough data sets to do that where you start to have automated behavior recognition so automated if it was the coffee machine it would be certain gestures within coffee making or if it was a dishwasher it would be certain gestures around a dishwasher or whatever it might be but you start to build an automated behavior detection model um, and again, those, it's a journey because the first stage of that may be very, very basic in the sense of now I know when a person is standing at the kitchen sink, for example. Um, but actually, that's already cut down human work by probably by 80 percent you know, or something. Um, and then you'll get into more micro behaviors. Um, and again, that's about training, training data. So it's a, the short answer to your question, is it all human or is it automated? It is a combination of automated and human. Um, and it's a constant journey towards increasing automation. And for clients, if they commit to a program, um, then the data sets will increase, the training will increase, and the automation will increase, which is where you start to get uh, scalability and uh and pricing, you know, corresponding pricing comes down and then you've got, you know, you've got a recurring revenue model. Okay. Uh, is your technology unique? 
Well, it, 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 it is in terms of having focused on what we are calling our platform, our, our kind of video intelligence engine and our pipeline, which can actually ingest video of any type and size. Um, I think, uh, uh, and then and then creating uh, the ability to, to create data structures on that platform. Um, it, it's almost dangerous to say it's unique, isn't it? Because somebody's going to come along and say, "Hey, we've got that, we've got that," but 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 actually, we haven't come across anybody else that's got that capability. And some of our conversations recently with some fairly chunky, sizable data companies, but also technology companies, West Coast technology companies, would would suggest it 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 is it is unique. Not not all of our functionality on the platforms unique, but if you if you can't take on any type of video file, <coughs> then you can't create the same data system as we've as we've created. So when you're pitching for new business, you are not pitching against other big sofas. You are pitching against more conventional forms of market research, and you're saying what we're offering is different and superior. Yeah, I, th I, th I think that's actually actually true. We're very very rarely in a in a sort of head on your functionality versus my functionality this is better than this um i feel like in the course of this and this is my actually my year's anniversary today um <laughs> i um i think i can count on the thing i think i think it's only happened once or twice in, in a year which is really unusual because I think that we're and one of the things I'm really really keen to do is is to be clear about what we are doing and how it is different and I think in a way especially in the insight space you know you have that kind of market um life stage development where initially it's just oh your video in insight oh you must be the same as this and this and this and then you get into a segmentation of the market um, where you know you could go anything from it's purely about a little bit of illustration of people talking and I just want to be able to see that quickly and I want to use that for I don't know sales films or convincing um, uh, internal teams of the validity of a hypothesis or whatever it might be right through to you know we're creating a data system we believe in video as data um, and I think that's a really differentiating space to be on. But also, Tom, really importantly, it allows us to start having a really interesting conversation with large um, data companies. So if you like technology and data companies breaking outside of the confines of the market research industry. And you can't do that if you haven't got a serious sort of data engine, as it were, data processing engine. Okay, now you say it's your year anniversary. That brings us to the difficult subject of your predecessor. Uh, one of the reasons that I've lost so much money on big sofa shares and so, so, so many people is your predecessor. Uh, uh, there are two aspects to running a business, sales uh, and costs. With, re with regard to the, uh, let's start with sales. Uh, he didn't deliver any. What have you done differently? Um, Don't feel the need to defend him. No, I, 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 honestly, I don't want to, I want to, I, I'm, I'm a great believer that you focus on what you inherited when you arrive and you look forward. You inherited um, the basket case, Kirsty. <laughs> so, so what, what I've done differently is, um, I mean, the first, well, there are many things I did, but, but one of the things was to get a clear, um, a clear sense of what our 
strengths and point of differences and what our strategy looked like. So I've quite quickly developed our three pillar strategy. Um, so from there's the Ipsos strategy, I can talk more about these, but the Ipsos pillar, looking at how do we really maximise that opportunity. Ipsos has about 20% of your shares, the big French marketing research giant. That's right. Sorry, I should have said that. The big, the big very large uh, market research, French-owned market research company. Um, so we really looked at, I really looked at that pillar quite carefully, well, identified it as a pillar and then looked very carefully at that and said, right, how do we um, begin to really harness that opportunity? Um, and there are two things I did. One was to say, we're a very small company on the outside of a very large and quite complex uh, company structurally. Um, so we need to do two things. One, we need to look at their workflows and systems and really see where we can integrate into a workflow so that it becomes easy to work with us, not difficult to work with us. So it becomes intuitive to work with us rather than lots of individual conscious decisions. So we've pursued um, a strategy of, of, of inter, in some integrations, um, some getting onto their automated pricing uh, models, um, things like that. It's very unglamorous. It's quite hard work, but it's foundational work that needs to be in place so you can start to, to grow the revenue. So we really focused on that in the first six months of the year. And the second thing we did was... Uh, has, and has it, have you seen any fee payback from that in terms of increased revenues? Uh, well, we, we have seen increased revenues um, from, from the Ipsos from pillar. Ipsos. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've made significant progress with Ipsos, but also importantly, I think we're um, we've we so we've made progress in the first half, but really significantly, I think we're ready to um, uh, we're in much much better place to grow the revenue in the in the second half um, and into two thousand and and twenty. Um, the second area of that was. Um, uh, so, so there's there's integrations to workflows, and the second one was to say, um, let's let's have a kind of Intel inside strategy with Ipsos. So rather than it feeling like I'm asking, for example, we're going to people in Ipsos and saying, oh, please use Big Sofa on these pieces of work, um, it was much more. Well, listen, why don't why don't you integrate our technology into some of your new offerings? So you're you're selling your new Ipsos offerings our technology is embedded in them and is, is like the kind of intel inside that, that facilitates the offerings. Um, so we've also worked on that. So that's the first thing we did. Um, second thing we did was say, what is our direct-to-client strategy? Um, and how do we make better progress uh, there? So uh, a few things we did there. One was I rebranded the platform um, a visual insight system um, rather than our technology platform. And um, I have to say that language has worked very well. I know you may feel that's quite superficial, but actually landing something that people start to use as language and starts to make sense to them is really important. We systemize video data. It's visual data. 
um, and you get access to this to this platform. So we did that. But importantly, we also worked really hard to get new uh, master services agreements with new clients. And we landed four in the first six months because without those, you, you don't have the permission to do business. So again, it's foundational work. Um, we did that. We, we also targeted, I wanted to make sure that we start to access companies beyond consumer packaged goods. So um, not that we don't want the consumer packaged goods, so, so, you know, this is about building on top of, um, and it's not about neglecting packaged goods because they're a very, very important source of revenue. But at the same time, there's really interesting opportunities with um, some of the newer kind of West Coast uh, technology companies. And we've landed two MSAs there. Um, and we've had uh, commissions, pilot work through them, which will hopefully lead us to um, win uh, bigger commissions and ultimately recurring revenue um, with those. So that, that was a big shift, I think, uh, in our direct-to-client work. And then the third pillar, which was really our... Um, Just going back to that yeah, direct-to-client yeah. work, yes. uh, your predecessor... Um, uh, uh, he kept on saying that he was signing big agreements with big companies. We're going to have, our target is to have 12 big customers, each of whom will be giving us a million quids worth of business a year. Yeah. Um, I think, I think I'm a, um, steady business builder pragmatist. Um, and I think that you have to build a relationship with a client. It's very hard just to walk in and with very quickly have a million dollar contract. Um, maybe you can do it. It's, it's not my experience that it's very easy to do that. Um, so my strategy was more, um, you have to get the MSAs. You then have to win a first piece of work because it's a, it's almost like a proof of concept you have to start proving your value to the business you can't just talk value you have to prove value you need to do work with them that starts to deliver value but also starts to open up their eyes to the potential value if they engaged you in a, on a on a broader scale and with a broader agenda so my strategy has also been get the MSA, win the first piece of work. Don't, don't aim sky high with your first piece of work. Uh, try and find the right level to go in at and win that first commission. Deliver it really, really well, really brilliantly. Really listen to where, you know, if there are niggles, know what they are, know whether they're technology niggles, know, where they, know whether they were servicing niggles. Um, feed it into your roadmap and your tech priorities. That's the other thing I've tried to do is really build that feedback loop so that we were really um, we've dovetailed our technology journey and our commercial journey. Um, and then uh, from there, you earn the right to have a conversation at a higher level within the company, probably uh, to say, well, what about a bigger ongoing relationship? So it's been more of a um, build if you like and be realistic about the time it takes to build those relationships and build them and make them really strong um rather than feeling like we're just going to go in and we're going to be winning you know million dollar contracts from from the off 
Are you saying, therefore, that you've signed so far four MSAs? Yes. And that was in the first half. Are you, therefore, saying that the revenue streams from these and from any ones you sign subsequently are going to be for the second half, for next year, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I, absolutely. That, that's, that, that could is they build up to being a million dollars? Some of them could. Absolutely. You don't, I mean, the other thing, Tom, is it's not an exact science, business building. I, I know that, you know, when I sometimes, when I've gone into investor meetings, um, I've had to be quite strong to say, I, I don't want to be pretending that it's all going to be plain sailing and that, you know, it's just a, a beautiful graph with a line going, you know, right up into the top right hand corner because, um, it's 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 more unpredictable than that. That's why you need to have enough uh, um, ongoing opportunities because of, you know, we can't stop at four MSAs. We need more than that. Um, and, you know, you're looking for the two or three that really grow in 2020. Not all of them will. And that's why you need to have enough of them. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm building towards. Um, and the other thing, the other thing is to take a business, which is what we're doing at the moment with one of the technology ones, and you get your first in, and then you really need to make sure that you get two more or three more sort of, uh, if you like, contacts within the organization. Because what you want to do is sort of build uh, a sense of momentum and um, conversation around you as a business within large corporates and you do that by connecting up by three or four people having conversations and saying oh we're working with big sofa technologies uh, that's interesting four of us are okay maybe we need to look at what this means and what they're delivering and and what this whole agenda looks like so don't stop at one it's the other thing we're trying to do um, never stop at one. You're always going from one to two to three to four, and you want you want to get your sort of like your ambassadors, you know, your cheerleaders, your influencers who start to get behind you uh, within a business. Okay, so the, is that MSAs in the second pillar? Ipsos MSAs. Yeah, and then the third one is um, is. Is, is, is really an area that we hadn't, as a business, hadn't be. I think there were some conversations in this area, but 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 it didn't have a specific focus. And that was really a recognition that, um, A, in the market research industry, you know, one of the things that's happening is that other players are coming in and sort of looking at maybe some of the uh, data providing areas that have traditionally been provided by research companies and other players are coming in but also just recognizing that if we're if we're about video as data um and we're a technology company and we're bringing a different kind of data to uh to the party video data at scale potentially at scale analyze then why don't we speak to some of the businesses that are huge data providers they've got lots of different data streams but you know what the data stream they don't have is the contextualizing human data stream often so they'll 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 have all sorts of data about exactly what people are doing on a certain technology platform or even what they're doing in a fridge or even what they're doing in you know with the internet of things all sorts of devices but what they can't do is sort of almost divide up, uh, sorry, connect up. What's the human doing in all of that? How does all of that 
interact and how is it all contextualized so that was the, that was the thinking let's bring a human data stream so let's start to have some conversations with some companies in that space um, and we've got through to two pilots with one of them and we're in conversations about something you know something larger so um I don't think that will happen overnight. I'd love it to, obviously. And I, I would love to be saying I'm going to deliver, you know, some huge contract, you know, in the next two months. But I'm not saying that. But I am saying I'm serious about it. Um, we've got some interesting conversations. Um, they, they work at a larger scale. And it's a very, very interesting space for this business. You say we as a sort of sales team. Is the sales team largely yeah. you? Well, no, I, I've just recruited, actually. No, it's not, is, is the first thing I would say. Um, I've, I'm also, I've also just brought on board uh, a new uh, senior uh, person who's an amazing uh, business leader, business developer um, uh, called Sam Curtis. Um, and he's only been with us a month. I think this is his second, second month starting today. Um, but it's taken it's taken me a while to find the right people. Um, I think he's amazing. So he's absolutely full speed ahead um, with our sales strategy, marketing strategy, and client engagement. Um, but also we've got. Um, I mean, in the US, we've 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 developed a lot of our business from 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 US customers. I mean, the um, budgets tend to be bigger. The market is. Even the, the domestic, if I can call it that, domestic U.S. market is huge. So we do we do direct quite a lot of our attention there. So no, no, I, I no, no, I I don't feel that I'm the key person. I think I've brought um, strategy and focus, and making sure one of the things I'm trying to make sure is the time because you know we're small and we. Um, we need to use our resources really wisely in a really targeted way, recognize when we're just in a dead end and move on. Um, and that's that's what I've been trying to do and really get a team that's firing on all, all cylinders. But there was a, the first half sales increase was what? It was massive, wasn't it? Yeah, it was 70%, yeah. Um, and, and actually the gross profit was it was 81 percent which in, in, I also focus on quite a lot because uh, that's pretty important so yes it was it was a it was a big um it was a big uptick um, what was it, that was you largely though was it um oh I, I don't know I mean it's always it's always a team isn't it it's always a team it's about getting a team um organized and focused um, I, I did change some roles within the business as well. I wanted to make sure that um, the uh, investment in technology and our roadmap was strate really strategic and really uh, dovetailing with a commercial roadmap. Um, so I changed a role to make sure I had somebody who was absolutely tuned into the commercial agenda but was an absolute expert on our technology um and so i think that's made a difference actually i think our efficiency as well and and our releases have uh, uh have increased in in regularity um and we're also trying to develop the right relationship so i mean i can give an example actually we've got um 
we've got a release coming up probably in, I think in the next two or three months, but it's really looking at our um, uh, interface and user experience, but also quite a lot of functionality. Um, but actually, if you develop, if you start to develop a good relationship with a key client, you can actually get their input on uh, some of your developments and a, they like, kit because they feel like they're getting a you know a sneak preview of something but actually for us it's so valuable but you can only do that if you've got a really good relationship so we're starting to do that with one of our um west coast technology clients actually um but again it's just making sure that when we when we invest you know expensive uh development technology money we're doing it in a wise and strategic manner you can't do everything don't try and boil the ocean, but make sure what you do is relevant, will be impressive, um, will help us win contracts, and will also help us uh, build the profile and uh, awareness of the company. Okay. The gross margin you mentioned there, uh, if you are increasing the automation uh, side of the bit, the, the amount of automation as opposed to human input, should I yeah. assume that gross margins are only going to go one way? Yeah, I mean, I think in the in the long term, that's absolutely logical. Obviously, the way that we'd want to go. I, I think that we are in. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to get carried away with what we've achieved in in H one because I'm sure you'll be the first to point out that we we haven't reached break even. Um, so there's still a lot of work to do, um, and there will be, um, you know, human time in sales development and uh, making sure that our agenda is on track with with clients. So in the in the medium term, absolutely, I'm not promising a huge change to that um, gross margin for um, for the first half of 2020, for example. Okay. Let's then turn to the fixed costs, uh, which came down by 20%, uh, I think, in the uh, uh, first half. Uh, you obviously only took, took, uh, took, over, took the helm uh, um, towards the second, uh, towards the end of last year. Uh, and we all know it takes some time to take costs out of the business. Yeah. Uh, well, there are two questions, obviously. Firstly, uh, why did the, the poltroon who was in charge of you before not take the costs out? Uh, you don't have to answer that if uh, you want to. I just want to be rude about him again. Um, but the second is, are there any more costs to come out in the second? Is the cost-cutting process complete? Yeah, okay. So, f first part of your of your question, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I do want to say that we did some fundamental... Um, uh, in te technology infrastructure work uh, in 2018 um, and not least getting our pipeline I've talked about that a bit I know it's not a glamorous thing to be talking about but it does allow us to uh, ingest video of any scale but also allowed our platform to be ready to plug in um, functionality such as for example object detection uh, facial coding um sentiment analysis and things like that actually you know plug in that functionality externally so there was a lot of work went in which was expensive um that came to an end at the end of 2018 and so there was the opportunity to say right that work is now completed 
um, and we need to take take that some of that expertise and team cost out. Um, so that's part of the reason that I was able to uh, make make those changes. We made some other uh, infrastructure changes um, on servers and, and various decisions there. Um, and then the next thing was um, was people and structures, and just making sure that we really had um, the people that we needed. Uh, lean teams and clear clear structures and areas of responsibility. So um, that's you know that, that that that's that's the reason for that. Now the second question you asked me was, what, did you ask me whether is there more cost? To come yeah, out? I mean, so, so, I mean, uh, you, you you phrased these things so much uh, uh, in so much more pleasant way than I would. Uh, See, so you fired a few people. Uh, are uh, some of the the people who were fired? Would have still been part of the cost base for a part of H1. So will the H2 well, actually, fixed cost be be oh, lower? I see, I see what you're asking. Actually, quite quite a lot of the cost base was um, contractors. So although I know I, I hear what you're saying, you're thinking, how can you just fire them and they've gone? But actually, when contractors are coming to the end of their contract, um, we could take quite a lot of cost out. Mm -hmm. um, relatively quickly and cleanly, if I could put it that way, as opposed to a lot of full-time staff that needed to 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 go. Um, I don't. I am not anticipating. I think your question is: Is this therefore from from that H one kind of overhead or cost base? Is that going to come down further in H two? I think is the question you're getting at. Yes. Uh, and the answer to that is no. I'm not anticipating that that cost pace changing changing dramatically um, it, you know if we've if other people have left in the meantime it's partly about making sure that we use that salary in the right way with the right person um, but um, I'm not anticipating uh, if you like cutting the cost further in fact I think at this point in the business um, with some momentum going got to be it's always that it's always that balancing act isn't it between how do I capitalize on this momentum and not be foolish about, you know, uh, almost tying one hand behind your back with capacity at the same time, keeping a very, very close eye on it uh, so that it's lean and it's strategic. And, the, and if we're spending money, we spend it because we really, really believe that there's a commercial benefit uh, to be uh, extracted within the next, and I can't work too long-term, as you know, so within the next sort of six six months. Okay. So, so if costs are pretty much uh, are going to be the same in H2 as they were in H1, uh, that was I hoping that your predecessor had been fired during H1, and that was a cost-saving. Um, well, I mean... But, but what I mean is that I'm trying to work with the I'm trying to work with that cost base to get the right people. I understand. Place, I, I, I do just, understand. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Dead wood out, live wood in. Um, the, um, the if the cost base is the same, uh, and you there is every reason for the reasons you've explained the developing relationship with Ipsos, the fact that master service agreements grow from small acorns to hopefully uh, uh, great oak trees, uh, and they were only small acorns in H one. Uh, in the in the, by Christmas time, by the end of the year, how close do you, do you think you'll be profitable? Um, Is the market expecting you to be profitable? 
I, th I, I, I think that um, we're making really good progress. Um, I mean, I, I can't say things that are not in the public domain. I think we've been focused. I think we've cut costs. I think we've driven sales. I think we've, we've you know, laid some really, really good foundations. Um, and I think in the next few months, I'll be delivering some, you know, reoccurring revenue um, so that we have a, a business model, a sustainable um, business model. Um, but I do, I do think these things take, take time. They're also a little bit unpredictable. Um, because you you get tied into the timescales of decision making and budgeting of of clients. Um, I don't think the the context in in London at the moment is a, is a friend to anybody. Um, so in terms of that client base, that's a, a difficult space. I mean, I, that's not unique to us. Uh, I, I completely uh, completely appreciate. Um, so we're, we're on a journey, we're on a journey and I would hope that, you know, as we, you know, as we go into 2020, we're going to be making some real, real progress. Okay, let's rephrase that. You, re, you raised £900,000 with your interims, um, which uh, disappointed some of us who, who, who were, were hoping that you would have enough cash to see you through to profitability. Do you believe that this time... And uh, uh, you may appreciate that some of us who've been involved with this company have been involved through numerous, this is the last time we have to raise money fundraisings. Is there any reason why it should be any different this time? Well, the big, the big reason, I mean, the funds we've raised, they'll go towards our, our working capital and certainly our goal of, of, of cash flow um, break even. Christy, I have to pick you up on that. Your business is loss making. So some of the funds raised will be going to pay for those losses. It's not working capital. It's just operating losses, isn't it? Well, it's, it, I mean, it's also making sure that we can be doing the right things to get this business into, into profitability. And so I'm constantly looking at, you know, what should we be doing with our technology? What, what, you know, what's the priority there in terms of functionality or robustness or visibility? Um, as well as, you know, what, what's our offering? How are we marketing that offering? Where are we taking it, you know, to, um, you know, what, what client, where are we getting the traction where we, where we focus on? I mean, I think that's, that's just what you have to do to, um, you know, to build this business and to make sure it, it gets to a sustainable uh, business model. The so, sustainable business model, whether those recurring revenues and therefore the visibility, you must have internal management forecasts. Um, and without asking you to put the spreadsheets up on the internet, um, based on those, and I accept that timing of contract wins until you get to the stage where you have a large amount of uh, recurring re revenues, timing of individual contract wins, the, the pace at which your MSA uh, 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 agreements pick up is uncertain. But do you believe that you have sufficient cash to see you through to profitability, which we'd have to hope would be achieved, uh, uh, the, the, hitting that inflection point to break even, we'd have to hope would be in 2020. Do you have enough cash to see you through to that point? And is 2020 realistic? Um, I mean, I absolutely believe that we're on a, a journey to um, break even, and I expect that to happen in, in 2020. 20. And I know that, I mean, I'm very aware that, um, 
there had to be some very patient shareholders. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not unaware of that. I've had to come in and focus on the job that I've been given, and and I've tried not to, um, if you like, get um, paralysed almost by you know pre the pres pressures for uh, events that have happened in the past. So I'm a very forward-looking person. I'm quite a positive person. I also believe in hard work and foundation building, and I don't want to sell pipe dreams. Um, but I, you know, break even in next year is absolutely, you know, what I am, what I am aiming for. Good. And thereafter, uh, one would assume that with those relatively high and hopefully increasing gross margins, uh, once you reach that point of break even, uh, uh, you could see a pretty decent ramp up in profitability. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think I think getting to that break even, getting our um, models really really working, um, then 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 you can start to really motor. I think I think one of the things in business is often. Well, I mean, I'm sure you're aware, you know, that whole thing of precedent, you know, getting deals through that set a precedent that you become really confident about taking to other um, clients. It's so, it's so transformative. I can't tell you it, 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 you know, it boosts your confidence. It's front foot forward. It's, you know, here's a model here. Here's how it works. Here's, you know, how can we shape this model for you? And I just think that will make such a difference to this business. Good. Okay, you're doing the right things, and no one can't. No one can say that uh, you're not an improvement on your predecessor. On that note, thank you very much, Kirsty, for your time. We'll speak again, uh, hopefully, around the time before your trading statement, which I hope will be upbeat. So do I, Tom. Thank you very much. Well, as a big sofa shareholder, I was reassured by that. There are two sorts of CEOs out there. Kirsty Fuller, you are no David Lenigas. You're also no Simon Liddington, your predecessor at the Big Sofa role. Uh, Lenigas, it wouldn't have been showing any caution. When are we going to get to profitability? Ah, don't know when, but it's going to be massive. Uh, Liddington, of course, predicted profitability all the time. He didn't quite say he was how he was going to get there, but he said, oh, we're talking to a lot of big people about big orders. And the orders didn't come. Uh, Kirsty Fuller certainly is not as flamboyant as Lenny Gass or Simon Liddington. Uh, she seems a rather dry, cautious individual. But she seems to have a plan. She explained to me very clearly, A, what her business does, and B, the methodology, the routes by which it's going to secure more business. You know, on the AIM cesspit, folks uh, tend to like folk, people like David Lenigas, uh, people who promote the stock, who ramp the share price. Uh, I'm sure if David Lenigas was running Big Sofa, the share price would be 10p, as he promised great things. Yeah, not only can we watch a video and discover what people are thinking, but we can discover hundreds of billions of barrels of oil underneath uh, the uh, Gatwick Airport, uh, that sort of thing. The shares would zoom ahead, but then inevitably they'd come down uh, as uh, the company ran out of money, something Simon Liddington specialised in, and of course David Lenegas specialises in with all of his companies. Uh, the shares would just come down as there had to be yes, another placing. 
Uh, Fuller, on the other hand, makes no great promises, but she does offer a clear pathway and explains exactly how she is going to increase sales over the coming 18 months. Moreover, she backs up her words with actions. The recent interim results show that sales are heading rapidly in the right direction. So she explains how she is doing it and how she will do it. And she also seems to take a very pragmatic approach to cost cutting and cost control. All of those things will, in due course, leave this business profitable and with high operational gearing becoming uh, increasingly profitable. Uh, If you hang on a few minutes and wait for my second interview today, you'll get an idea of what sort of profitability is achievable within two to three years. Now, it may not be exciting. It may not be dramatic. It may not be the sort of stuff which sees the shares go through the roof tomorrow. Uh, If you want that, try and find a company David Lenegas or James Parsons is involved in. But then if you look at the share price charts of those companies, you'll see they race ahead. But then inevitably, things start to go wrong. They run out of money. The promises are shown to be bullshit, as they were with Kirsty's predecessor at Big Sofa, Mr. Lidington, and the shares come tumbling down. Ultimately, investment is a game for the patient. If Ms. Fuller delivers on the sales progress, which she outlines and which she explains how she's going to deliver and keeps costs under control, uh, then Big Sofa will become a profitable business and with its high gross margins, an increasingly profitable business. The value of a share is the value, the net present value of future discounted cash flows. Now, I believe that Kirsty Fuller Uh, has articulated there why she will deliver uh, and why she will, over a two to three year period, be delivering material cash flows, something which is not discounted in the share price. That's why I'm very, very happy to hold on to my shares. I do believe they will go up. I don't believe it'll be overnight. And of course, there could be excitement. She intimated there uh, that she is hopeful of securing uh, uh, some contract wins and more importantly, hopeful of being able to demonstrate how the master service agreements signed earlier in this year are leading to a steady but material ramp up in revenues from key clients. If uh, there is news on that, That will drive the share price, but that is the share price being driven by fundamentals, uh, not by promotion. The A market is full of promoters, folks who talk a big story but don't deliver. That can give you short-term excitement on the upside, but it can also give you short-term disappointment on the downside uh, when the inevitable placing and profits warnings or lack of profits warnings uh, come to pass. It's far better to invest in a company with a sensible, a sober, sensible CEO uh, who articulates how the company can grow without necessarily needing additional finance and how that growth can lead not just to increased sales, but to real profitability being delivered. may not be the sort of stuff that that sets the world on fire. Kirsty Fuller will, I fear, never be box office like David Lenigas. But where would I trust my pension for long-term returns? Lenigas or Fuller? It seems to me to be something of a nil-brainer. And for the avoidance of doubt, the answer is not Lenigas. 
I hope you enjoyed that. Of course, Kersey and Big Sofa didn't pay for this interview. I invited them on because I do believe it is an interesting story, albeit one that requires sober thought uh, and contemplation of the points made by Ms. Fuller. We're only able to bring you this podcast uh, thanks to the sponsorship of Riverfort. Uh, uh, sorry, I lied. Through the sponsorship of Yorkville uh, Associates, uh, who are a provider uh, of uh, capital for smaller companies across the world. Uh, equity, debt, convertible loans, uh, they provide a range of financing solutions. Uh, and unlike many in this space, are not uh, uh, usurious uh, exploiters of companies. Uh, they try and align their interests with those of other shareholders. Uh, if you want to find out more about Yorkville Advisors, go to yorkvilleadvisors.com. Uh, and uh, if you think of using our services, please feel free to mention where you heard about them, i.e. this fine podcast. Now, for a second interview, I think you'll find this one is a little bit shorter. And also a little bit more sparky. We start, obviously, uh, with a subject close to all of our hearts, a page three birds. My second guest today is Adam Reynolds, a man many people in the A market know. He's brought a range of companies to market. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Adam. Pleasure, Tom. Uh, right, Adam, uh, is it true you were once married to a page, page three bird? <laughs> let's, not, let's not even go down that route, all right? Let's start with the businesses, which are far more... I'll, I'll take that as a yes. Right, um, uh, you, you used to be a stockbroker um, with some disreputable firm. What made you go into floating companies on the AIM casino? Uh, I mean, it is, it's a list, uh, disreputable stockbroker, AIM promoter. Uh, you yeah, know, next yeah. up is sort of rent boy at King's Cross. What yeah, made okay. you... Um, I... I'd been broking for sort of 17, 18 years. I started with Roe Rudd, went to Jacobson Townsley, ended up at Bramson Gothard, and I was there for 10 years. And um, really, I sort of straddled um, from institutional sales to corporate broking. And corporate broking was something that was just starting to develop. And uh, in 1998, I decided to take, you know, take the plunge and move out of broking and really go into set, set up my own business, which was Hansard, which was a corporate finance boutique. Um, it did very, very well, listed it on AIM, um, did, did very well for five years until we sold it. Um, and that really led me into more, more corporate transactions. Is, I mean, you had a career as a corporate broker. It strikes me that uh, uh, on the bottom end of AIM, the uh, brokers as they are, the people who you have to have as your uh, uh, firm advising you, are bloody useless. Um, for small companies, they just don't, they're incapable of raising money. Um, they don't put out any research which is worth having. Uh, if you're going to prosper on AIM, you have to be able to raise your own money, really, don't you? Yeah, I agree. I think that I think the problem is is that so many of the small broking houses are uncompetitive, um, and I, I'm amazed that so many still survive. And I think I think there'll be a you know probably a number of one dot down or be a number of mergers over the next 12 months. I mean, if you look at the, the amount of corporate deals, corporate deals going on at the moment. Um, they're very, very few. And how some of these smaller brokers survive, I, I just don't know. You know, they've got big overheads. They tend not to raise very much money. And I think it's all about um, if you're running a PLC and you need to raise money, it's more who you know rather than who the, rather than who the brokers know. OK, let's uh, whistle through the portfolio of companies yeah. which you've listed, because I'm sure a lot of people have exposure to that. Uh, I do, of course. 
Um, uh, I don't know where we start. Let's start with uh, uh, Sanda, yeah. uh, which is unusual because normally you've been involved in healthcare and technology. Are you still on the board of Sasanda? Yeah, on the board of Sasanda. We reversed it into um, Shell uh, two years ago. Um, share price obviously share price did very well to start with, then came back on the back of you know, so a lot of online companies probably led by ASOS. Um, what Sander's done, which I'm really pleased pleased with, um, is that it's it's gr- you know it's growing, it's grown, it's growing, and it's growing rapidly, despite um, you know a sort of a, a difficult retail sector. They seem to be, you know, they've they've got it right with their online offering. They've now started doing television advertising, so especially on Granada, if you're in the northwest, you'll see a number of number of sort of television adverts from Sasanda. There was one in the south um, a week ago, which I thought was, was tremendous, and now sort of on tie and tease. And the company's doing, I'm very, very pleased with the way the company has, the company's grown. The company has grown tremendously in the last, in particular in the last 12 months, uh, you know, considering how bad the backdrop is on, you know, on sort of retail spend. Do you not think that uh, uh, this sort of cork and wave thing, if the macro climate is so unfavourable for online retailers, uh, you're really sort of battling hard to stay still, aren't you? Um, no, I think if, you, if you've got an offering that is different or an offering that is attractive to the end user, and if you can grow your customer base, and certainly what Sander's done, it's, it's grown its customer base very strongly. Um, from when from when it first started to where we are today, there's a lot of repeat orders. And the, you know, to me, the acid test for a lot of these online businesses is that although they do advertise a lot and they have to spend on advertising, um, if you can if you get a second or third order from a customer, that is a retained customer. It's not sort of a one-off. I mean, it, you know, most companies if they do enough advertising will have one-off orders. This is uh, a business that has got a, a, a retained customer base, a growing customer base, and um, you know, has got multiple repeat orders coming through. And the product quality is improving all the time. And that's what I like, you know, whereby we've got many more um, people in the media, ladies in the media who are wearing the product, which, which, is, a, which is a great advert for us in itself. Um, the quality of the product is, has improved dramatically. We're sourcing from, from many more suppliers. We can turn around products a lot, a lot, a lot faster, you know, whereby before we'd probably only have... To a particular dress, two hundred in two hundred in, in stock. We've now got a thousand. We can now turn those around within three weeks if we if we if we run out. Where before it probably take us twelve weeks. So, you know, the bigger you get, you know, the the, the bigger you get, the the sort of the more ad- advantages you have. So, I think in the sector we're in as well, um, you know, in that in that sort of range of probably ladies to a, you know, sort of twenty seven, eight, nine going on, you know, to, you know at the age scale. They they're the ones that that you know probably got a little bit more money to spend. So I'm I'm, I'm very happy with the progress of the, of the business. One thing about Sassandra, of course, is it's had to raise money. It has raised money on a couple of occasions since the IPO. Yep. If I look at the projections that were made at the time of the IPO, uh, we were expecting it to be profitable without having to raise additional money. Is that a bit of a disappointment to you? Um, well, I think if you look back two years ago you wouldn't have seen the retail sector quite where it is today you know we sit here with you know eight and a half nine million pounds of cash in the bank going into you know brexit on the 31st of october or it might not be it might be who knows none of us know i'd much prefer to have a company with a with a really strong balance sheet 
you know cash balance sheet which which it's got you know we have we could have taken the view okay we'll keep it to to a small medium sized business we won't raise any more money we can we can still make it grow that way but you've got to be fast in this market you've got to be so so fast to to once you've got the opportunity to to grow you've just got to go and develop it and that's why we've raised money to do that and we've got the money we're now we're now able to do television advertisements uh you know sort of sort of we've done a lot in the tube stations um up the side of escalator walls um you know that's what the money's for it's you know it's capital expenditure to grow the business and you'll you, you'll see that in the amount of customers we've got so yeah we could have gone we could have gone slow track medium track or fast track we're going fast track okay uh, well i'm surely advertising spend shouldn't be regarded as capital expenditure it's as part of an operating cost well, yeah, but it is, I mean, but if you're if you're a manufacturing business, all of a sudden you're buying new machinery, you're buying this, you're buying that. With online, you, you have to, you know, advertising is part of your capex because you, you your ex, your ex, your expenditure is really to try and bring as many new customers as possible. So it's it's slightly different dynamics online. I think we're doing it we're doing it correctly. There's probably things we could do better. There are with with any business, um, but I'm very very I'm pleased with what we've what we've achieved so far. Um, the final question is, you talk there about sales, but sales are vanity. Uh, 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 what matters is profitability or uh, 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 cash generation. What also matters, Tom, is, re- is returns. The, the, you know, if you can reduce your returns rate, that really flows down to the bottom line. And, and you know, what we're seeing now is the development of, um, you know, if, if anyone goes online and sees it, there's a, there's a denim shop online. Where returns are a lot less with denim as they are with, say, structured dresses. There's a there's a lot there's a lot of things coming out whereby we think the returns will be will be will be lower, um, and hopefully we'll get our returns below you know the industry industry standard um, in in a short period of time. There's talk about at least one of your competitors uh, uh, using software for those people who are just repeat returners. I gather uh, amongst young people, they just buy a dress, wear it once and then return it to cut them out of the system altogether. Is that going to happen with Sasanda? No, because you've got got a different age demographic. I think what you've got is with the particular online company you're talking about, they have got a much younger audience. And, you know, there will be people who order something. They take photographs of themselves, put it on Instagram, go to a party. Hopefully, the the garment is not damaged. Fold it back up, put it put it back, send it back to the online retailer, and try and get try and get a you know get a credit back on their on their credit card. Our customers, you know, slightly different. They're 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 they're, they're, they're you know it's a more mature age group, and um, I don't think you know I don't think people can be that bothered to do that. So no, we, we don't have that issue. Okay, um, so do you believe that you you uh, have enough cash to get through to profitability, and when would that be achieved? Yeah, you've got enough cash to get through to profitability. Profitability will be achieved. Uh, you know, it depends, it depends. It's difficult to say because if we carry on expanding and we want to go into the states, um, you know, that the profitability may be a little bit later coming. You know, I haven't taken that view yet. I think that if we just stay doing what we're doing, profitability would probably come in the next twelve to eighteen months. Um, for the next 12 months but if we went to the states it would be that little bit longer but you're growing a bigger marketplace mm. wouldn't it be simpler simpler just to get through the profitability and then go to the states um it depends i mean i mean i think that the product is well liked it's very well followed we are getting you know we started to see um 
you know, quite a lot of over, you know, overseas interest in the product. You, you can't, you know, you can't say, okay, fine, I'm going to look at this micro, micro, you know, micro company and go, yeah, let's get it to profitability. Then we'll go to the states. You might miss the opportunity. I think if the opportunity is there in any of these small businesses, you've got to take it. Okay, let's move on to Octibasics. You're no longer on the board. Uh, you must be be sort of a big shareholder, uh, 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 like myself. Uh, you must be terribly disappointed with the share price. Disappointed with the share price. Disappointed with the share price. Yeah, um, I think there's an awful lot in Octibasics, and it's trying to um, extrapolate out the value of some of the licenses um, they've got. And hopefully in the next, well, the, the year end is November. Uh, you know, what I, what I really hope to see, um, you know, sort of in the second half of the year where we're, you know, literally we're two thirds of the way through it, that when they come up, come up with trading updates sometime in December, that we've got a bit more, there's, there's more clarity on what their revenue has been in the second half of the year. Because I, I would hope that some of the, the, license, the license deals they signed um, you know, 18 months ago, 12 months ago, it does take time to come to fruition. We all know that, um, but hopefully, some some of the some of the agreements they signed 18 months ago, hopefully, we'll see some of that revenue be part of the, the you know the, the the second half, the the numbers of the second half of this year. That you say hope? The, do you believe or just hope? I, I believe. I believe it. I think Steve O'Hara is a very good operator. I think he's done remarkably well. Um, he's certainly um, you know, sort of got some very interesting transactions that he's done. I think he'll have a lot more going forward. Um, I think it will happen. It's just a, I think sometimes, you know, markets can be impatient. We as investors can be impatient. Um, it's very difficult to evaluate, you know, down to the nearest 50 or 100,000 pounds what that revenue number is going to be. But, you know, I think he'll, he'll, he'll do it. I mean, I think he will do it. Um, but I think that what the market needs is a little bit more clarity, and I think they will get that. Hopefully, they'll get that clarity uh, with the you know, with the sort of trading update for the year, which should be some you know some some stage during. Yeah, uh, the the company keeps on announcing deals. I mean, the last one was a deal with a company they can't name, the value they can't uh, uh, say. Yeah. What, what the hell was the point of that? I know. I think that look, I've, that's, I've, we've had that in other. Businesses I'm involved in, where you've oh, it's got famous, the Adam Reynolds keyboard, the one with yeah. no numbers on it. Yeah, no, there are there are numbers on the keyboard. Um, but no, we've 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 sometimes you know you are bound by um, uh, sort of agreement, you know, agreements you sign. People don't want their name being, you know, majors don't want their name being banded around. Um, and why announce them? Because there's because if you don't know the numbers involved. And you yeah. can't announce the name. Uh, surely, if you don't know the numbers are, you can't say that it's pricing sensitive. So just don't announce it. Yeah, no, I, I, no, I, I agree on that. I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think that on, okay, you know, on those occasions, you don't announce it. You just, you just, just carry on with your business and let, and let the numbers speak for themselves. I think the numbers will speak for themselves, but you know, we're, we're only going to find that out in December. Is it finally there was a, a, a tip sheet written by a, a bloke who uh, I've never heard of, and I, I sense is not even a household name in his own household, suggesting that Opti had to do a placing. Uh, what do you reckon to that? No, because I think because I think their balance sheet is is strong enough anyhow with their with their um, with their equity in in, in skin biotics, the cash they've got, 
and actually they run it on a they run they run a very tight ship. Um, there's not a big there's not a big you know cash mo- monthly burn. Um, yeah, it's probably a hundred, hundred and twenty thousand pounds a month. Um, they've got a very nice holding in skin. Um, I noticed that the last interims they'd they'd sold a little bit of that stock off. Uh, if they needed money, just say for example you're in a position where they where they did need money, um, you would probably you'd probably go the skin route rather than go to the market and, and raise money. So I think that they're in a they're in a they're in they're in, they're in an, an advantageous position I think compared to a lot of other companies because they're they're holding they're holding a relatively liquid asset in skin, and if they needed to raise half a million or a million pounds, they could do that. But presumably, the other argument is if O'Hara delivers in the second half of this year what he promised that he would, they that is to say a 5 or 6% uh, uh, times uplift in sales from H1, yeah. then they wouldn't actually be burning cash in the second no, half. I mean, no, it wouldn't be because your cash burn is, <clears> you know, you know, you've got a light overhead in the business. No, it wouldn't be. You're right. So if you can get the, the numbers through in the second half, you know, you shouldn't have burnt through it. You should have burnt through a, a, a tiny amount of cash. But you have got you, know, you have got a, a good backstop in that you are holding um, an asset that if you ever required to place that out, you probably could do that. But, uh, but I don't think they'll do that. Because I think that, quite honestly, they've got, a, they've got a good business. They've got a good model. Uh, they just got to, you know, they just need to get it to, they just need to get the revenues in the second half, and I think they'll do that. Do you think uh, they make great play about how they appointed a new uh, broker, um, <clears throat> this uh, European firm, Goats? Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> the Goats people, they put out one note, but it hasn't made. I mean, actually, since they appointed Goats, the shares have absolutely tanked. Uh, does that go back to our scheme, uh, our theme about how all brokers are useless? No, I think well. I think they're, they're slightly different because they're a European they're a European broker, and what they have got or they, what they tell tell us they've got is that they've got a number of family officers, um, and I think that that I think there has been I think there's been sellers in the UK I think there have been I think goats have put in some buyers, uh, they did a note, um, I think that you know what will get what will get the stock going will be when we when we see you know when we see numbers that's the key to that's the key. You know, really, as I can see it, I think they've got a great business. Let's just let's just get to the point whereby the second half we come out with some with some good revenue numbers. So you thought the shares will be re-rated once we have a trading statement in December, and presumably, if they hit those second half numbers, then going forward into the next financial year, the company should actually be profitable. Yep, that's my that that, that is my view. But I think that you know, from what you saw at the at the interims, <coughs> where there was where revenue wise. There hadn't been a lot of revenue growth from the year previously. Uh, I think that probably unnerved, unsettled shareholders. Um, I think that you know there was some there was some nice profits in the equity. A number of people wanted to cash or decided to cash in. That's why we saw all that volume the day or the day or the following day after the interims. I think now you've got to settle 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 the equity down, and now you've got to deliver in the second half. And if you if you bring those numbers. Out that are five or six times greater than the interims. I think you'll you'll you'll, you'll settle the price, settles people's nerves, and then you'll just be looking forward um, to a, you know to a growth curve for next year. One final point on Novelty Biotics. It is depressing. I, I mean, I find it depressing that the chairman bought a whole load of shares last year at 97p. Here's his opportunity to average down, and he's not doing so. Um, is there any? Uh, do you find that just disappointing? No, well, I mean, I've seen, it, I've, I've seen it from my own perspective in other PLCs, you know, whereby you're asked to do that, where you've come in at a level um, a little while later, 
the market always expects you to buy more. And there comes a point when you, you know, if you're a director of a public company, you buy them, you can never really sell them. Um, and, you know, it just depends on your own personal liquidity. I mean, you know, he bought a lot of stock a year ago. Great. Good on him. That's tremendous. Uh, maybe at some stage you will buy more. Um, I don't see it disappoint. I just, you know, other people might see it as being disappointing. But, you know, I've been in that position in the past. And there's only a finite amount of money that we've all got, or liquidity that we've all got, that we could keep playing back into equity. That, you know, once you buy it, you you can't sell it because it, you know, you dis- you disappoint your following your investors. So, I, I I have I have sympathy with the board when it comes to pressurising them to buy stock because sometimes you know you just don't have the liquidity to do it. Mm. Okay, let's move on quickly to Big Sofa. We already uh, had a long and detailed interview, which I'm sure you'll enjoy, with uh, Kirsty Fuller. Yeah. Uh, would you put your hands up and say that uh, when you uh, floated Big Sofa or reversed it into whichever shell it was, yeah. uh, uh, you made a monumental blunder in uh, having Simon Liddington as not only a CEO, but an all-powerful CEO, able to do exactly what he wants. The bloke was a complete knobhead, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say the latter bit, but I think we did make a mistake. All right, I, I admit. Um, I think what happens. I think what happens with he was useless. Can we agree on that? He wasn't. He didn't deliver on what we thought he was going to deliver. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, I think what happens with a lot of businesses, you find them. Uh, you are sort of flattered by the management. They've they've got a good track record. You raise money, and you raise a lot of money, and some. On occasions, we've had management that have done a fabulous job. On other occasions, we've had management that go and spend the money. And, you know, often they've, they've never had any money in the past. And you raise five or six million pounds and they spend it within three months because they've opened up America. They've, they've hired this guy, that guy, that lady, this one. You know, everyone's brilliant. Everyone's going to be fantastic. And in the end, they've spent the money. They've got a monumental overhead and they've got no revenue. And that you know, that really was the, the story behind Big Sofa at the start. I think if we had restricted, you know, if we had said, okay, fine, we're only going to raise two, not five or six, and we'd restricted it and, you know, show us the numbers, don't grow it quite as you're trying to grow it, we'd have been in a better position. Um, so, obviously, a year ago, um, we had to do some quite significant changes. Kirsty came on board it, with a company in a very difficult, precarious situation. Um, I think she's done a. I think she's done a brilliant job. I mean, she's cut the overhead by twenty or twenty-five percent. Um, she's grown sales. She's got deeper into the customers the company had. She's brought some really good new, you know, proper blue chip businesses, global businesses into the company. And I just, I think she's doing a remarkably good job, considering from you know she came, she came from a long way back. You know, she had a lot to do to to stabilise the ship. She's she's done that. She's done that now, um, and I think you know she's a you know it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a nice business, and I think it will become a lot better business you know going forward. I mean, it's still not making money. I think it will make money now relatively quickly, um, but, but I think what she's done is great, and she's in. She's but in the right well, place. Let's, let's just go back to, to, to her predecessor for a second. Yes, she's <laughs> cut cost by twenty percent since she took charge. Yes, Liddington, the knobhead. Yeah. Yeah, oh, did a big cost cut as a condition for the bailout placing just over a year ago. Yeah, surely there is an issue here that the rest of the board and yourself included uh, are culpable in that uh, Liddington insisted it was impossible to cut costs, 
right until he had a revolver put against his head saying, you have got to cut costs in order to get this bailout placing away. And then suddenly he was able to cut costs just like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Kirsty really cut the cost. I mean, leading, leading to, well, there's a few people that went. Yeah, I think I think we yeah, I, think, I think we should have been. I think I think you, that's a very good point you made. I think we should have been a, we should have been a lot harder, um, a lot sooner, and we weren't. And yeah, that was that was a mistake we made. Um, I think you know what okay. we thought what we thought at the time was that you know he would you know he would get the sales because it was all it was all the here the big sales numbers we could get this we could get that. Uh, I think we, we will have that signed in the next whenever, and lots of those things never happen. So you you tend to go with it. Um, but yeah, you're right. We should have cut. We should have cut costs a lot earlier. Where we were lucky, we got Kirsty in, and where we're lucky is that we've been able to fund it all the way through. And I think, um, I think now, we, the, I do think now that the company is at an inflection point. That um, once it goes profitable, people will suddenly start to really understand what it does, and, and I think some of the quality of the customers are they're, they're very blue chip customers. Because once it goes profitable, given the very high gross margins and what Kirsty said earlier about where gross margins are going, uh, there is clear uh, a, a huge, huge uh, operational gearing in there, uh, uh, and yes. profitability could could zoom ahead. When do you expect the company to uh, to reach that inflection point of break even? Either well, I I would like it to be Q4 this year. I'd probably, it probably won't be. Um, if one's being conservative, it'll be it'll be next year. I mean, I think the cost base, and you've got the numbers, Tom, because you've interviewed Kirsty, and I'm no longer on the board. I think the cost base is probably about 3.1 million, 3.2 million a year. Um, I think it was 1.8 at the half year, but I think there's a few costs that came into the half year from last year. So I'd expect the cost base is probably still to be going down a little bit. Um, gross margin 64%. Hopefully that will that will that will that will improve. You know, you need revenue of 4.8 million to get to break even. Um, I, you know, I would have thought they're, they're not on an on, a, on an annualised run rate. I would have thought you're pretty close to that number at the moment. Okay, and 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 what sort of profitability would you hope for within a couple of years? Well, look, you you spoke to, you spoke to the CEO. I'm just an, I'm just an investor with a resource stake in the company. Yeah, if in two years' time you got you had a business that had 10 million of revenue. You kept your gross margin at sixty-four percent, and you increase your cost base, let's say, to four million from three from three point one now, because you've got to bring on extra staff to service some of that revenue. Yeah, you'd end up with a you'd end up with a P, you know a PBT of two point four two point five million. You know, an IT digital data business probably would command I don't know fifteen times earnings, which is thirty-six million market cap, which is probably twenty p a share. Right. Well, fingers crossed. Well, fingers, fingers crossed. It's hope. It's hope. 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 But you know, look, you might not get to ten million in revenue. You, you, could, you know, it's easy. To, it's easy to work the numbers out. But you know, you've got a cost basis, as I say, of just over three. You've got you know, revenue is growing now. You saw the statement that came out two or three weeks ago in the first six months of the year. There's a lot more commissioned work in the second half of the year. You, you, you know, you've got some other stuff you know um, there, which hopefully they can convert into revenue. Um, they sh- I think they should get to five, six million in revenue, I would hope, next year. 4.8 probably is a magic figure for break-even. And then probably the year after, if they can carry that momentum, if you're at 10 million revenue, you are a very profitable business. You'd, look, you might not get 15 times, you might get 10 times earnings. I don't know, but it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly in the right space. Okay, I think I'd agree with you on the multiple. I'm not. I'm not sure on the forecast. I guess it's okay. just guesswork at this stage. <laughs> it's, purely, it's purely guess. Honestly, it is guesswork because 
you know, no one knows, you know, what's around the corner, you know, what order you might get, you might not get. We know the facts of what they've got in the first six months of the year. We know the facts of what has been commissioned in the statement that came out. We've seen the way she's grown the business. And if you just project that growth over the next two years, who knows? You know what? But it'd be a really nice thought if we were saying, well, actually, they've got 10 million of revenue and they've got, you know, 4 million of, 4 million of overhead and they've got, still got 64, 65% gross margin. Okay, let's move to the uh, disaster in your stable, Conceptor. The results yep. uh, the other day were completely rubbish. Yep, they were. Um, I mean, okay, so uh, let's rephrase that. The results were, I think sales are, sales are slow. Um, what you've got with Conceptor is, uh, and it's, it's sort of, share price has been really disappointing, Um the sales I thought would have been would have been stronger than they have been. The most important thing is, though, we had a product that was developed uh, four or five years ago. It went through all the regulatory hurdles, and you know, for a medical device product, this is what you have to do. It went through all the regulatory hurdles. It got its C mark for China three years ago. China was a very tough market. We brought that back to the UK. It got all its approvals through. Uh, last November, which was great. That is a massive, great milestone um, through, which meant we could then start selling the product in December. I started selling the product. The most important thing with a medical device product is that it does what it says it will do. And this was to help ladies conceive who, who, were, who had struggled to conceive. What we've got is probably out of the the ladies that have been paying for the product and the starter kit since December, January, February, March. They didn't all start in December. People were buying it in January, February, March, April, May. I think like about 24% of those ladies that struggled to get pregnant are now pregnant, which is absolutely fantastic, which is tremendous. So you've got regulatory approval, you've got a product that works and a product that delivers and the results are actually better than we expected. So the Manchester Fertility Clinic on Monday announced that with, with, with all their IVF programs in Manchester, they will now use uh, a MyLotus product for each of the ladies that, 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 they, that they look after. And I think that's, that's 600, I think that's 600 tests a year, which is great. So 600 new sales on the monitor and the, and the pack. Um, sales need to improve. They have to improve. Um, but we've got a product that works. So I'd rather have, um, I'd rather have a really good product that's something that, that works well and is actually very, very good. Obviously, what we're not doing, or we, we haven't got, what we haven't got right is marketing and, and the sales of the product. But the key thing is the product works. And that, you know, there'd be nothing worse than having a product that didn't work or it failed or it didn't get regulatory approval or you've got to modify it or there's a... But there's a big competitor in the market. There is no direct competitor. To, uh, but, but, but Adam, I mean, you know, yeah. go, uh, I, you're old enough to understand when I say to you, Betamax. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, Betamax, VHS, which, who was going to win the war? Yeah, VHS won it. Yeah, no, I, 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 but Tom, I agree with you there. You know, have we got a product that's, you know, Betamax was a better product than VHS, actually. Have we got a product that is much better than anything else? Um, we've got a product that has got no rival. It has no rival. Um, what we have to do is to really start to, um, to to drive the sales. And hopefully the transaction with Manchester will be a start. Hopefully other IVF clinics around the country will go, well, actually, if Manchester have now got it, 
which is giving um, ladies even more of an opportunity to get pregnant. You know, if you go to an IVF clinic, you're, you're spending four or five thousand uh, pounds. Actually, for an extra five hundred pounds or four hundred pounds, is actually built into the whole IVF program. You've got you've got the My Lotus product, which is going to give, which is going to tell me when my peak time of ovulation is. Um, other clinics are going to have to take the product because otherwise they probably will not have the success rate that Manchester will have. So there are a number of other clinics that I think will take the product. That is, that is like, that's on a, that's on, that's on a B2B basis. Where, where I think we, we, we need to focus more or what, where we need to drive ourselves is also on the B2C side. And I think, I think we'll do B2B because I think we've, we've got the clinics. I think we'll get European clinics as well. I think what we have to do is to really sort of drive the b drive the b to c side and um yeah that's 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 what that's what we've got to look at and that's what we've, that's what we've got to try and address but the product's great the product is phenomenal and it works really well it's just it's just driving the sales i'm trying to distract you here my cat has just brought a rat into the uh, uh house no, that's lovely uh he's starting to eat it lovely um finally uh okay so conceptor work in progress uh, uh we'll follow space but yeah, it's been well, work in progress and we've got to get the sales that is the key to it we've got the product the product works the product's really good and the results of the product are absolutely fantastic but we've just, we've just got to get the sales that's what we need is to is to is to is to just to drive those sales okay and, final question yeah. your gene um yeah. uh, there's a company where you are getting sales mm-hmm. you've got net cash uh, but again the share price is very disappointing why is that you know Tom, with the share price i don't know um, do you yeah. care? Um, it would be it would be rude and arrogant to say I don't care, but I think you know what we've got. We've got a phenomenal company, and the share price will look after itself over time. You know, if, if that if that answers your question, I mean, I'm not following the share price minute by minute, going actually it's gone down a quarter, it's gone up a quarter, it's doing this. I'm not, and that is. I know we've just got a very, very, very good business. We've got a business that is growing. We've got a business that is a global business. We've got a management team that is absolutely superb. Brilliant uh, group of people. We have so many different opportunities. Um, I think the share price, in my opinion, the share price will take care of itself. What was the catalyst for the share price taking care of itself? Because you have a relatively new broker, yeah. Uh, 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 um yeah. I'll have a few thoughts on them. Um, uh, but uh, it doesn't seem to be making any difference. No, I swear, I mean, there's, there's, okay, so the summer was an awful, was not a great time for equity markets. Anyhow, equity markets really have been pretty poor. You know, since the start of the year, they've done they've done very little. Um, you know, there's been some diabolical performances on on AIM. I think you know we've held up. We've held it. Yeah, we've held up really. We've held up well. Um, it, the stock will go better. I mean, I think Steve have got a note that's got a 20p share, share price forecast. That's great. Um, we've got. We have got a couple of institutional buyers there who will buy stock on the really dull days. You know, the days when things are drifting. There has been. There has been. A, there has been a seller. I don't know who the seller is, but I'm not. I'm not sort of wound up about oh the share price is down or 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 it's you know it's not where it should be because i think as i say i know what we're doing as a business i think we've got a most phenomenal business tremendous um team of people um and the business will deliver and i think once the business delivers and everyone sees what we're doing and the growth of the business 
the share price will deliver. It always happens. It will deliver as in terms of making a profit. Yeah, it will deliver as terms of making a profit, but also the share price will deliver. You know, i.e. the share price will, you know, will reflect the way that the way the, the way the business is going. And I think that, you know, what happens with a lot of companies, um, and I've seen it in something else I'm involved in, which is eCare. If you ever disappoint the market, it probably takes about two to three years before there is trust again in in a share price and that when there is trust again um you know the buying momentum comes in and it fuels the share price and and off it goes i think we've got the same with your gene you know it was it was promethe it had it went through it had a, it had great technology but it went through a very difficult period whereby the litigation with illumina um the debt that it had with thermo uh which way would it go in the European market um, because of the, the Illumina litigation? We settled the litigation. We settled the thermo debt. We bought a Lucigene. Um, I still think we're in that, you know, brought on a new management team as well. Um, I still think we are in that period of um, people getting to, still to know the company, getting comfortable with the company. Um, I think we're coming to the end of that period because, you know, we, we have done an awful lot in the last 12 to 18 months. And, you know, I think that once we, you know, once we make once certain numbers, figures start coming out over a period of time, there'll be probably a lot more confidence in the company. So, you know, we are at the moment in this period where I feel very comfortable with what we've got. I think we've got a tremendous business. I think we've got some tremendous opportunities. Um, uh, the share price, the share price is what it is at the moment, and I think that that will that will write itself over a period of time. Can I ask with both relevance to both Octobiotics and Eugene? They're both of a size. Uh, and uh, where they could get a dual listing on NASDAQ. They're both on the cusp, we believe, of material profitability. If they were on NASDAQ, I put it to you, the share price would be twice what it is today. Why don't, yeah. they, uh, why don't they, instead of fasting around presenting to family offices in uh, you know, tax havens in Europe, why don't, they, uh, why don't they just get a listing on NASDAQ? I think a dual listing. I mean, two, okay, so I'll, I'll give you the where your gene should be. So your gene does about a fifth of the number of tests that Natera do. Natera's capped at a short $2 billion. We're capped at 80 million pounds. So quite honestly, if we were, if we were, a, if we were a fifth value of Natera and they are quoted in the States, we'd be a $400 million market cap, which would be 300, 300 million, 320 million pounds against 80 million pounds. So there might be a four times uplift in the value of your gene if it was in America. The problem is, I think when you're a small company and you're a dynamic company, the cost of listing in the States is big. Uh, the second point is you've got to report on a quarterly basis. The third point is you've got to spend a lot more time there. And the fourth point is there is no point really being listed in the States until you probably are a, a three, four, five hundred million dollar business because institutions won't take you seriously. I think if we got if we got to a size where we were where we were getting to that size in the UK, um, I'd have no hesitation to list on Nasdaq uh, or a joint listing. But I think at the moment we're too small. And I think also what it what it would do, you know, probably the annualised cost, the, the additional annualised costs would probably be about half a million dollars a year for that. And also the reporting procedures are that much more onerous. I think if we put half a million dollars, um, you know, if there's a half a million dollar dent to the bottom line, I don't think the investors, institutions or, you know, um, you know, people like yourself, Tom, you're not, you're not going to be happy with us. Okay. If you had to bet the ranch on one of those five stocks in your portfolio, which would it be? Your gene. Okay. 
Thanks very much, Adam. We'll speak again soon. And next time, you've got to answer the question about the page three bird. No. (laughs) Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, So I say I own many of the shares Adam talked about. Uh, He's an interesting fellow. I hope you'd agree. If nothing else, that has to be a first in the history of financial podcasts. Never before do I believe a financial podcast occurred uh, and included the sound, if you turn the volume up uh, high enough, of a cat eating a rat. I hope you enjoyed uh, this week's podcast. I'll be back with another edition with a bear next week. A high-profile bear, I believe, uh, and much more besides. If you can't wait seven days to hear my dulcet tones again, then you're a cheapskate. Uh, because I record a podcast every day on Share Profits, The Bearcast. Uh, and you can access that for just five ninety nine a month. Plus, uh, about 300 articles a month exposing the skullduggery at the bottom end of the AIM casino and elsewhere. So sign up now. Five ninety nine a month, less than the cost of a glass of wine. If you're a cheapskate, you won't be hearing from me for seven days, and I'll speak to you again then. Thank you for listening. Man of